Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. This morning, uh, take your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 10. Um, we're going to do things a little bit different this morning. I'm not going to put all the slides on the TV screens as I usually do. Uh, because it's a very difficult subject that we're going to cover. And so as you get to chapter 10, you might see a little heading there, and you're going to be like, oh, that is a very difficult section of Scripture. Some of you have uh, known this was coming, and some of you were excited, and that just means you're sadistic in nature. Um, I'm just kidding. I, I, do, uh, I do come with a heavy heart this morning as I approach this topic. So a few weeks ago, I told you we're, we're not doing topical, but topics come out of the context. And this certainly is one of those cases. Uh, I remember nine years ago, I think it was, I was actually uh, at what would become a church plant. I was speaking and teaching through the Gospel of Mark with a few families, uh, several individuals, probably 40 to 50 people on a Sunday morning. And I was just teaching Scripture. Uh, And what we would do is we would show up and we would sing some songs, kind of like we did this morning. And I'd say, crack open your Bibles, let's just go. And uh, then we'd, we'd eat. We'd eat lunch. And that was kind of like, that was it. You know, we were just trying to be as acts modeled as possible. And as I got to this section of scripture, um, I still have the image in my mind. Okay. So as I got to this section of scripture, there was a young lady with her kids who was going through a divorce. And she just wept the entire time I taught. And so I know that there's pain And I know that there's grief, and I know there's sorrow, and I know there's, uh, for some of us, guilt for things that have happened. Not, I would say all of us in here in some form or fashion, we've been touched by the topic of divorce. Um, You may or may not know this about me. I was raised in a single-parent home by a mom who worked two jobs to make sure I could wear Tommy Hilfiger clothes, and I still feel bad about that. Um, She worked all the time. So I was raised by a teenage girl in the 80s, and that was why I'm messed up. Um, yeah, amen. That's, that's, why, that's why you look at me and you shake your head. And I'm like, it was MTV. That's, it's its fault. Um, so I, I was raised by a single parent in a home without a father. And I love my dad. Um, I know sometimes he listens in and watches. And so I don't want to say anything to hurt him either. But God did not plan on crying, okay? Like that was not in the plan of the notes. I remember the day he came home, he was a truck driver, he came home, and I remember him taking me out into the garage and sitting me on the freezer and trying to explain to me why he was leaving my mom. I remember that. So these are painful topics, and these are difficult waters to navigate. So I don't want to be tied to slots. I want to be tender to the Spirit this morning. So... uh, I've already read through it and decided there was a couple of slides I wasn't going to use. Um, And who knows, I might use them. (laughs) Um, But let me just pray as we jump in, okay? Father, come to you, uh, desperately in need of your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your forgiveness, your light to shine in the darkness. God, you are such a loving God. And you're so patient with us when we have hardness of heart, when we make decisions that go against your word, as we wrestle through this life of sin and pain, you bring your son 
so that we could have life. You give us your spirit so that we could have power. You fill us with your righteousness so that we could be made right. You do all of this because you're so loving. So as we jump into scripture, God, speak to us. Lead us and guide us this morning into truth, into your word, that we would be a people holy and dependent upon you. In Christ's name, amen. I should have brought a tissue. Oh, wait, I have a, I have a mask. <laughs> That's why I have this. Okay, so holiness part two, holiness in the home. So we, last week we talked about holiness. We talked about that God produces a holiness in us. The best place for that to be seen is in the home. Holiness in the home. And so what I want us to understand is that we need to take this section of Scripture from a Christ-centered viewpoint. So there's a cultural viewpoint, but we need to have a Christ-centered viewpoint. And so what is a Christ-centered viewpoint? Christ is the source. If Christ is central, then Christ is the source of how we look at Scripture and how we build our home. So a Christ-centered home recognizes that Christ is the source of holiness, just like we talked about last week. If there's to be any holiness in the home, it's got to be Christ-centered. He produces in us what we cannot produce of ourselves. Christ is our only hope. There's a hope and a future. There's a hope for the home, and it's found in Christ. And not only that, there's help. Our only help, our only hope, as we sang, is in Christ. And that is played out in the home, holiness in the home. So as we read last week, 2 Peter one through three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence. All things have been given to us by him. It is Christ. Christ is the source for holiness in the home. So that's, that's the first thing we need to see. Number two, Christ is the motivation. Christ is the motivation for us to humble ourselves in the home. If there's to ever be holiness and unity in the home, there has to be a Christ-centered motivation. It can't just be what I think or what I want, but there has to be a Christ-centered motivation. So Christ compels us to live out the life of godliness. As we looked at last week, it was uh, Romans 12:1. Therefore, why is the therefore therefore? Because therefore God has done all of this up to Romans chapter 1. Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. So he's not only our source, but he's our motivation to lay our lives on the altar of worship and say, we are completely surrendered to him. And that plays itself out also in the home. It's also a Christ-centered home is that Christ is glorified. The, The goal of a home is to glorify God. That's the whole purpose, your family unit. You look at your kids, you look at your wife, you look at your husband. The whole goal of your home is to glorify God. That's why we've all been placed on this planet, is to bring glory to God. And so we do that as we put Jesus at the center of our home. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. He's the, he's the center. He's the source. He's the motivation. He, he's to be glorified. So we do that by living for him. So in your home, you live not for yourselves, not for your kids, not for the, the things that this world would put in front of you. In your home, you live for Christ to be glorified. 
So, as we jump into Mark chapter 10, let me use my, my handy dandy. I need to wash this, probably. Um, smells. Um, that's why I have gum in my mouth. Uh, so it smells good. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. Jesus in the covenant of marriage. So let's jump in. And he left there and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again. As was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This question uh, that was asked by the Pharisees, this was not a question asked because they really wanted to know what Jesus' theology was. They, they were not coming to Jesus to say, all right, let's, let's figure this out once and for all. Let's see if it's right. Let's see if divorce is okay. Let's ask Jesus. That guy knows. No, they came to test him. They came to, to put him on, on the test to see whether or not he would say things that would go against their culture. And so they're testing him. Not only that, this is in the area of, of, of where um, Herod and Antipas is, is reigning. And so therefore, you know what happened to him earlier when John the Baptist spoke against his marriage, where he married his brother's wife, which was also his niece, which was kind of disgusting. And so he spoke against that. And what happened? He lost his head. So let's put Jesus to the test. Let's see what Jesus says. And if Jesus says the same thing that John said, then maybe this problem that we have will take care of itself. So they're coming, they're not looking for answers, they're coming to trap them. But not only that, these are the Pharisees, they're the, they're the keepers of the law. And, and here's, here's the truth, if you seek to live by the law, you will look for loopholes. Am I right? I mean, look at your driving record, right? You look for loopholes on when you can speed and when you can't speed. They give me 10 miles over the speed limit. I live by the law, Right? And sometimes they don't. And then you're like, wait a second, I was living by the law. So the topic here of divorce, they're coming from a cultural standpoint. There's two main teachings during that time by two different rabbis. One, uh, Rabbi Hillel was a very lenient and popular view. The other one by Rabbi Shammai was a strict and very unpopular view. And so Deuteronomy, which takes the law, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says, when a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she is, finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some, he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So this is the law of Moses. So if there's any indecency in her, well, this word indecency was being taken out of context. And this is what happens in a culture that wants to redefine Christianity. They take a word out of scripture and they redefine it so it fits their motives. Am I right? All the time. So this word indecency, William Barclay says this. They said that it could be, it can mean if a wife spoiled a dish of food. So if, if your wife burnt your dinner, you could divorce her. Now, when we first got married, I wasn't, I'm sorry. I'm going to tell a story. Okay. I love you. Okay. When we first got married, my wife was going to make chili. Okay. And so she went and she, she got the beans and she got all the stuff and she put it in the crock pot, but she didn't buy canned beans. She bought a bag of beans. Right? And so some of y'all know. And so I bit into that. And they're like, I was like, oh, oh. And she was like, you making fun of my food? She grabbed my bowl of chili and she like threw it into the backyard. So if your wife was to spoil a dish of food, <laughs> I love you. I don't know why I told that story. Uh, if she spun her dress in the streets, 
I, by the way, I make all the chili now. Uh, and from, from now on, probably. Uh, if she talked to a strange man, if she spoke disrespectfully to her husband's relations in his earring, so if she spoke bad of her mother-in-law, <laughs> that never happens. If she was a brawling woman, one who is defined as a woman whose voice could be heard in the next house. <laughs> yeah. One rabbi even went as far as to say that this meant if a man found another woman fairer in his eyes than his wife was, she could be given a certificate of divorce. So they've taken this word indecency and they've totally abused it to fit their culture. Let's keep reading verse 3. He answered them, well, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you that commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Our definition of marriage should be a Christ-centered definition of marriage. And that's what we get from this section of Scripture is a very Christ-centered definition of marriage, not a cultural definition of marriage. A cultural definition of marriage will take a word out of context and manipulate it to fit what they want their culture to say is okay. So if we're going to give Christian counsel in the area of marriage and divorce as believers in Christ, then our counsel should line up with a Christ-centered view of marriage and not a cultural view of marriage. So what does that look like? Well, number one, a Christ-centered covenant of marriage is defined exclusively as heterosexual. I, I shouldn't have to say that, but I do. A Christ-centered covenant of marriage not a cultural definition, but a Christ-centered definition is exclusively heterosexual. It says, in the beginning, he made them male and female. To say otherwise would elevate a cultural definition of marriage over a Christ-centered definition. And what has happened in our culture is that just like these Pharisees who were trying to manipulate and get loopholes, denominations have done the same thing. Believers have done the same thing. Many denominations and believers have, in an effort to appeal culturally relevant or in an effort to be compassionate towards individuals whom they love, they have adapted their definition of marriage to fit the culture. But as I said last week, no matter how hard you try, holiness and sin will never be friends. No matter how much you want to reconcile that, it just will not happen so a Christ-centered covenant of marriage is not only defined by God, it's designed by God to display the love of Christ. So husbands, how you love your wife in Christ is a picture of how the world believes Christ loves the church. Wives, likewise, how you love and submit to your husband in Christ is a picture of how the world believes the church should respond to Christ. So this is a picture. So he says, but from the beginning of creation... So when Jesus gives a definition of marriage, he goes all the way back to the original design. He says, all right, well, he made a male and female, but let, let me tell you the design of marriage. The design of marriage was to be 
the picture of a greater relationship. It was a man and a woman, and they were united under God. God performed the very first marriage in the garden. So we get to verses in Ephesians, like Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes, and he says things like, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And those are difficult verses. Uh, I remember one girl that was in my youth ministry, she marked those verses out. She said, nope, don't agree with that one. And I was like, you can't do that to the Bible. Like, you can't just pick and choose, right? She's like, I don't like that one. Well, that's because of the fall. After God did this first marriage, there was a fall. And part of the consequences of the fall was you will want to rule over your husband, There's going to be a part of you that always pushes back against your husband. So he's saying, look, if you want a relationship that is designed from the very beginning, it's going to be a relationship where the wife submits to the husband. But husbands, you have an even harder part. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you take this and you go all the way back to the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it's in the context of holiness. It's in what it looks like to live out a Christ-centered life. And he says this, therefore, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. So if you want to see how this plays out, it plays all the way out into the marriage relationship. It is designed to be an image of Christ and his church. Therefore, be imitators of Christ. Let me tell you, If your marriage goal and the design of your marriage is to imitate Christ to one another, wow, holiness in marriage. Personal holiness displays the character of Christ. It displays the love of Christ, and it displays the sacrifice of Christ. A Christ-centered marriage is a marriage that seeks to be an imitator of Christ, both from the male and the female. So personal holiness matters in marriage. And humility is the key to holy matrimony. Humility. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. This word love, we get this definition Paul gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You might be familiar with this. It's talking about how we should respond to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's often used in wedding ceremonies, and you're going, to be, you're going to remember this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love. There's one phrase in here that I've highlighted. It does not insist in its own way. Can I tell you the thing that, that I see that destroys more marriages is when someone insists in their own way. They put aside walking in love. They put aside being an imitator of God. And they begin to say, you know what? This. This is where I put my foot down. This is what I insist on. And a self-centered marriage is the complete opposite of a Christ-centered marriage. 
self-centeredness in the marriage results in a treating of each other with resentment, a treating of each other with impatience, with harshness, with coldness, with fits of anger. And when this type of behavior begins to take place in the marriage, it leads to self-pity, anger, blaming, despair, and ultimately, as Moses would say, a hardness of heart. Self-centered hardness of heart leads to all types of sinful actions. So a Christ-centered covenant of marriage, thirdly, is dedicated to God. It's defined by God, designed by God, and it's dedicated to God. It says there, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So marriage is what God does. What God has done, let no man separate. So if you want a Christ-centered definition of marriage, you go all the way back to the very beginning where he created male and female. And he designed them to be in a relationship that glorifies him. He's designed it to be an, an, a relationship where you imitate Christ. And it's dedicated to God because it's defined by God, it's designed by God, and it's dedicated to God right there. Let me read from Matthew chapter 19. This is the context and gives a little bit more detail to what's happening. Matthew chapter 19, 3 through 9. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It is not God's design. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus even gives this except. The word there, sexual immorality, is a very broad term, the word porneneia in the Greek, and that's where we get the word pornography from. We get all kinds of sexual immorality from that, and he's saying there are, there are things in the marriage, these, these things, these porneneia, these sexual uh, things that, that are done that separate the dedication to God because adultery is simply idolatry. It's saying, you know what? I don't want to be Christ-centered. I want to follow my own way and worship what I want to worship. And you offer your body as a sacrifice to an idol rather than to God. Divorce is always a result of sin. It's always a result of sin. It's always a result of unrepentant sin and an unforgiven sin. It's always a result of sin. Dave Harvey, in his book on marriage, he says, marriage is the union of two people who arrived toting the luggage of life. And that luggage, is, it always contains sin. So you have two people come together with all their stuff, and then they become one. And so you have all this sin and all this sin, and then you just got a whole pile of sin, right? We brought it all together. And if you ignore it, if you act like it's not there, it just grows and grows and grows. 
Therefore, be imitators of Christ. Divorce comes down to one or two parties refusing to reconcile the sin that has separated them from the definition of marriage, from the design of marriage, and from their dedication to God and one another. So I say that to tell you that sin is serious. Sin always is seeking an opportunity to defame the covenant of marriage and destroy individuals in the process. And that's why the statistics of divorce are equal in the church as they are in the world. Because sin is rampant. Sin is always out there. Sin is always trying to destroy individuals, destroy marriage, destroy the design, the definition, and the dedication to God. And it's the most beautiful picture of all of those. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. You hold it in honor because it represents the relationship that best depicts our relationship with God. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. But let me pause there and tell you, but there is hope. There is mercy. There is grace. There is forgiveness. You can't out the grace of God. Well, no matter what decisions you've made, there is always more grace from God to cover you and to forgive you. We seek to display a Christ-centered marriage because it produces a holiness in the home. It moves its way down. A Christ-centered marriage produces a holiness in the home that then is given to the children that are raised in that home. Our marriages are to be a picture of holiness. So, husbands, the way you treat your spouse reveals a lot about your personal holiness. Wives, the way you treat your husband reveals a lot about your personal holiness. Therefore, be imitators of Christ, a Christ-centered marriage. Let's keep reading. We're going to pick up in in, uh, verse 13, chapter 10. We're going to talk about Jesus, and he switches here, and he moves to the call of missions. We're still talking about holiness in the home. Starts in the marriage. It works its way down to the children. So let's pick up where it talks about children. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall never enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, saying, blessed them, laying his hands on them. So they were bringing children to Jesus. They were bringing them to him, and the Greek word there really means they were bringing children to Jesus to be dedicated. Now, well, we do child dedication here, and we haven't done a child dedication in several months for fear of the COVID, I guess. Uh, but we need to do some child dedications, so I'm going to throw that out to parents. The reason you do a child dedication is the same reason these parents are bringing children to, to Jesus is because we want our child to be raised in the blessing of, of Jesus. 
We want our child to be raised not only in a home, in, a, in the holiness of the home, but also in a church body that helps us lead in God and push our children towards that moment of salvation, lead them towards sanctification. The one day they'll have glorification. We're working together to point children towards Jesus Christ. So he says, look, let the children come to me. This is This is the kingdom. This is what the kingdom does. The kingdom leads kids towards Jesus Christ. This is the duty of the church. This is the call of Christianity. This is the duty of the children's ministry and every children's ministry worker to lead children to Jesus. But first and foremost, it's the duty of the parents. Discipleship begins in the home and the church is there to support it. Parents bring their kids to Jesus because they want their kids to know Jesus at a very young age. So they're bringing kids. And what happens? These disciples rebuke them. What are you doing? We don't have time for this. We're doing the Lord's work. Look at this. We're the disciples. We're following Jesus. You know, we're we're going about, we're doing all this work. And so they rebuked him. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Let the kids come to me. See, the mission of God is to bring children into the kingdom of God. The mission of God is to bring children into the kingdom of God. Now, the word children here also represents those who are young in Christ, those who are new believers. It it, it represents those who are humble. It it represents those who are outcast. It represents those who are afflicted and, and marginalized. It represents all of these, but it also represents children. The mission of God is to bring children to the kingdom of God. Therefore, missions in the church, the disciples of the church, should not hinder that mission. Children come to Christ when disciples are dedicated to the mission of the kingdom. When a church fails to see the mission of the kingdom they fail to reach the next generation. And and I say this because we see this all the time. There are countless churches closing their doors because they did not reach out to the next generation. There are countless churches that are growing lower and lower and lower in numbers because children are not coming into their church. They decided to do things their old way. And so they rebuked the kids. No, we're not going to do that. They only did what was best for adults. They stopped serving and discipling the next generation, and ultimately they hindered children coming into the kingdom of God and coming to Christ. And now their churches are declining at such a rapid pace that they will inevitably close their doors. We see this over and over and over What we need to realize is that children's ministry is kingdom-minded missions. Children's ministry is kingdom-minded missions. It's cultivated in the home, but it's complemented in the church. The church helps parents lead their children towards Christ. It begins in the holiness of marriage. That marriage relationship that says, I will be an imitator of Christ, then feeds into the life of the child But you and I both know that not every child is being raised in a home that is Christ-centered. Therefore, that gets pushed on to the church. Church, you need to step up 
for those who are marginalized. You need to step up for those who have been separated from God. Those who are not being raised to know Jesus Christ in a Christ-centered home. So we step in and we do the mission of the kingdom by doing missions to the children. You see, the mission field is children's ministry. It's easy for us to miss the significance of what is happening here. Jesus is discipling his disciples by demonstrating to them how they are to receive the lost, the lowly, the hurting, and the outcast. You see, discipleship is about missional demonstration, not just biblical discussion. Let me say that again. Discipleship is about missional let me read it so I don't mess it up. Okay. Discipleship is about missional demonstration, not just biblical discussion. You got these disciples who are like, ah, oh, we ain't got time for this. We're asking Jesus questions. We're having biblical discussion. We want to know, all, we want to grow. We want to do all these things. So we don't have time for missional action and development and this demonstration. So they're, they're pushing that aside. The church that pushes aside missional demonstration for the topics of biblical discussion, they miss the opportunity to be kingdom-minded. Missional discipleship actively engages the ones who need to come to Jesus. John Piper wrote uh, a sermon back in 92, or he preached a sermon, and I found the transcript of it. And he said this, America is one of the most violent countries in the world against its children. Not only do we kill a million and a half preborn children a year, but 22% of the children in America live in poverty. One out of every four girls under 18 has probably been sexually abused by someone close to her. Possibly as high as 30% of all the mentally ill may be owed to fetal alcohol syndrome. One study of 36 hospitals showed that in 10% of the pregnancies, mothers used illegal drugs before pregnancy. And 89% of school teachers surveyed reported that abuse and neglect of children are a problem in their education. The American home is increasingly an unsafe place for children. But the family is God's will. The family, holiness in the home. And so we as a church, when we see that these are real statistics, this is 92. I'm sure they're higher than that now. We can't just say, we don't have time for that. We're having biblical discussion. It's about the demonstration of missional discipleship, becoming engaged as a church in the lives of those who are marginalized, those who are suffering, the percentages that are being left out. So let's be a Christ-centered church. Let's be it. Let's be a Christ-centered church that demonstrates the desire for discipleship by engaging the lost, the hurting, the abused, and the demoralized. This means, church, that we take an active discipleship role in our home. Number one, let's take an active discipleship role in our home not just to have biblical discussions with our kids, but to demonstrate to them what missional discipleship looks like. It begins in the marriage. It works its way down into their lives. Let's take an active discipleship role in the local church. 
Let's show what it looks like to serve. Let's reach out to those who are in need. And let's take an active discipleship role in our community. So what does that mean? That means that in our community, we take an active, I keep using this word active, because it's important, discipleship role, being against abortions, but advocating for adoptions. Realizing that there are countless kids lost in foster care systems who do not understand what it looks like to be in a Christ-centered home. And we can't just sit back and hinder them from coming to the Lord because we want to have biblical discussions. It should move us into active discipleship. And that causes us to sacrifice. It means we take an active discipleship role against sex trafficking and pornography. We take an active discipleship role against child abuse, against child hunger, and against child homelessness. We take an active discipleship role against racial discrimination and segregation. And I I know that's a touchy subject, but look around. Let's reach out. Let's take an active discipleship role against the preventable diseases and sickness that cause so many kids to lose their lives each and every year. Most of the diseases that kill kids are due to malnourishment and diarrhea, things that can be fixed with over-the-counter drugs. These are not problems to fix. These are people to find. Let me say that again. These are not problems that we as a church try to fix. These are people that we seek to find. These are little ones who need to come to Jesus. These are people made in the image of God who need to be rescued by the Son of God. People are in need of Jesus. And discipleship begins in the home. Holiness in the home. David Platt says this, if we're not careful, we'll miss this. Instead of discipling Christians in the world, we do a better job of disinfecting Christians from the world. Don't we often have a dangerous tendency of focusing on disinfecting Christians? What do I mean by that? We isolate them in a spiritual safe deposit box called the church building, where we teach them to be good. We define success in our churches by how many people we can get into our building, where we are insulated and isolated for a couple of hours every week from the realities in the world around us. In those buildings, we're taught to be good, which is basically defined by what we avoid in this world. Don't do this, don't do that. It's holiness determined by what we do and do not participate in. At this point, we may be one of the only organizations in the world defining success according to what we don't do. So we live decent lives in decent homes with decent jobs and decent families, as decent citizens in it all. We're decent church members. But if we're not careful, we can go through our entire Christian lives and never meaningfully engage with a world in need around us. If we're not careful, 
we'll be far more concerned with disinfecting ourselves from the sins of this world than engaging this world that needs to know Jesus Christ. And it begins by being imitators of him. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons 